From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Chronic pain, it's the most common cause of disability in the U.S., and it's often treated with opioid pain medications. But the overprescribing of opioids has caused an addiction epidemic. So what can be done? We'll hear how Mayo Clinic is using complementary pain management therapies such as acupuncture, massage, and yoga as an alternative to pain medications. We'll also learn about a new endeavor at Mayo, the Well Living Lab. Also on the program, we'll discuss the childhood obesity epidemic with a Mayo Clinic expert. And we'll have an update on the Mayo Clinic Proton Beam Therapy Program, now operating on the Minnesota and Arizona campuses. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, according to the National Institutes of Health, we rely a lot on them for statistics, don't we? It's a good thing they're there. Well, what they uh, told us about chronic pain, you know, cramp pain that lingers, that it affects more Americans than diabetes, heart disease, and cancer combined. Chronic pain is, in fact, the most common cause of disability and is often treated with opioid pain medications. And we know that word opioid, don't we? And that means the medications like heroin, morphine, and prescription pain relievers. And of course, opioids are not without some serious side effects, including the fact that they can be addictive. In an effort to find better ways to manage chronic pain, clinical trials at Mayo Clinic are testing complementary therapies, such as acupuncture, massage, and yoga as alternatives to medications. Well, here to discuss complementary pain management therapies is Dr. Brent Bauer. Dr. Bauer is director of the Mayo Clinic Complementary and Integrative Medicine Program Welcome back to the program. Dr. Bauer, good to have you with us. Always great to be here. Chronic pain, a big part of your practice? It is. Uh, We see a lot of patients who are looking for that next level of care for their chronic pain. In other words, we know that we can do a lot with conventional means, physical therapy, medications, but we also know a lot of those things have side effects. As you just pointed out, opioid epidemic has become a crisis for this country. So we really have to ask ourselves as good physicians, how do we meet the needs of our patients in pain without opioids? And and I think part of the answer anyway is integrative medicine, acupuncture, massage, mind-body training, a lot of things that may not be the full answer, but I think are really a good part of the overall approach. When we're talking about pain, that's a pretty big umbrella. So you could have nerve pain or skeletal, muscular, you know, there's lots of different, my feet have hurt you know, for years, whatever the situation. Um, are, are there different types of chronic pain or how do you kind of break that out so that you can help patients more? Yeah, so uh, there are lots of different types and, and obviously we think of some things like fibromyalgia, uh, a muscular condition where the pain's kind of all over. Uh, those patients seem to respond very well to acupuncture. We've had a lot of success here using acupuncture, never as the only answer but as part of an overall approach. So we still want them into a cognitive behavioral therapy training. We want them to do physical therapy. We want good nutrition, good exercise, that's foundational. But then to bring along other things like massage, like acupuncture as an adjunct to the overall care, 
we oftentimes see uh, great responses. Okay, fibromyalgia. What are some of what are some of the other ones? Well, think of what we have in our country right now as a an aging population. So osteoarthritis, lots of back pain, neck pain, hip pain, knee pain, and Dr. Shives takes care of some of those things very well. But not all. But not all. <laughs> and, and surgery should never be our first answer. So we always want to try and see what we can do to make people feel better with other things before we get into the strong drugs, big surgeries. What about headaches? Uh, can you, do you have some help for people with chronic headaches? Yeah, we do. There's quite a bit of research, especially on migraine headaches, uh, but also tension headaches, uh, that acupuncture, again, very effective, not only for treating, but very interesting with migraine headaches actually as a preventative. So people who have a propensity for migraine headaches get acupuncture on a regular basis, dramatic reduction in the number of headaches they get. When you say regular basis, that might be the key part of this conversation because if people are taking pain relievers for whatever ails them, um, they would be taking it multiple times a day or at least once a day. Mm -hmm. Do you have to have acupuncture performed once a day or multiple times a day to see that same sort of benefit? Hopefully not once a day. Uh, I would like it, but <laughs> <laughs> I just have to find time in my schedule for it. <laughs> well, what we see with a lot of things, it, it kind of depends on how acute the pain is. So if somebody just hurt their back and they want to use acupuncture as part of it, might be two treatments a week for three or four weeks just to kind of put the fire out, so to speak. Somebody who's dealt with chronic pain for years and years might get six or eight treatments over a month, but then maybe need once a month as kind of a maintenance schedule. Because I think you're absolutely right. Some of these things are not cures. We don't cure the pain, but we can actually help deal with the symptoms. So it's very reasonable that some people get a massage once a month or twice a month uh, indefinitely. How do the uh, acupuncturists and yourself decide where to put the needle? I mean, if you've got if you've got pain here, you don't necessarily put the needle there. No, you? no. Unfortunately, I don't help them decide at all because I don't know the first thing about where to put an acupuncture needle. But these guys go through a lot of training, uh, and, and we have both licensed acupuncturists who follow the more traditional Chinese medicine realm, which is where we think about the flow of qi through the body, these energy panels or channels. And then we have our licensed or our uh, physicians who have gone through acupuncture training. So they're both coming out from different paradigms, but they end up using the sort of the same points. And they have a, a long history of how those points were chosen. And you're absolutely right, where the pain hurts isn't necessary where you're gonna put a needle. It's interesting that Eastern medicine and Western medicine are coming together in acupuncture, yes. don't you think? Oh yeah, well I think everything's coming together in this realm. Uh, you know, we've done 17 studies here at Mayo Clinic on massage and post-operative pain, uh, pre-procedure anxiety reduction, and we've had tremendous results. That's why we now have a number of massage therapists as part of our staff. So as we look at the evidence, we find things out here that might have once been called complementary or alternative. Fringe. And as we start to say, no, there's evidence, <laughs> can we ma marry them with the best of conventional care? That's Mayo Clinic. If we put the two together, can we integrate them? And that's why you hear this term integrative medicine. We're integrating the best of conventional with the best of evidence-based uh, complementary therapies. So where do you get your, your patients? Are they all referred to you? You know, if I had chronic pain and I wanted to bypass my physician because for whatever reason, <laughs> can I come directly to you or do I need a referral? We want a referral. And that's to that very point. We don't want to have us say one thing and their primary physician say another. So we see this as a very collaborative opportunity. We want to see our colleagues' patients, but we want to do it in a way that whatever we recommend is a recommendation back to them. So we're all on the same page. I don't want to tell the patient to use acupuncture, but there might be a reason uh, that their primary provider doesn't want them to use acupuncture. So it's a dialogue. 
I'm so curious, to, and I just have to ask this. Patients come to Mayo Clinic from around the world. Uh, do you see some raised eyebrows when maybe they've traveled here from hundreds and thousands of miles away, and then you say, well, let's, let's see where some massage might be able to help with this, or some acupuncture, and do they think, yeah. at the Mayo Clinic? Is that something that you're getting from patients? Not, not as much anymore. You know, we've okay. been around with this integrative medicine program for 20 years. We've done tons of research, lots of books, DVDs. I, I think Mayo has a good reputation in the wellness realm now. Uh, and a lot of these other cultures, people from overseas, a lot of those cultures have massage, uh, mind-body treatments, yoga, tai chi, as part of their healthcare paradigm. So in some regards, they look at us like we're catching up to what they knew. Uh, and that's fine. I think what you know we are doing is trying to integrate the best of both worlds. You've been doing uh, complementary and integrative medicine for a long time now because we've had you on the program multiple times. What it, what is it that what surprised you the most about the whole field? Well, I think uh, probably surgeons <laughs> more than anything else. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, because what do surgeons tend to think about what you're doing? Well, you would think perhaps like <laughs> at a place like Mayo Clinic, which is largely founded on a reputation of fantastic surgery, uh, where we tend to be kind of conservative. Some of the earliest adopters uh, were our surgical colleagues who saw a benefit for post-operative pain and said, yes, we'll make massage more available. We'll hire massage therapists. So it really was uh, an effort that really blossomed here because of our surgical colleagues. Let me ask you one more thing. We know that the supplement industry, uh, people spend billions of dollars every year on, on supplements, and uh, lots of different stores sell them. Do you, can you name me a supplement or two or three that actually does some good and um, what it does good for? Sure. So that'd be another conversation for uh, uh, another day in great detail. But a couple of, uh, thinking about chronic pain, uh, a couple that I use quite a bit, one of which is called SAMe, S-adenosylmethionine. That's why we call How it SAMe. How do you spell SAMe? S-A-M, all capitalized, small e. SAMe, okay. So SAMe. So that's actually got some pretty interesting studies on osteoarthritis pain. Now, the other thing it has is some pretty good benefit on uh, depression. So if you think of some of our older folks who might be a little depressed, have osteoarthritis, but can't take an anti-inflammatory because of gut irritation, kidney function, so forth. So that turns out to be a very helpful one. The other one we've been using quite a bit is uh, something called curcumin, one of the derivatives of turmeric, which has some good anti-inflammatory effects, and some patients get benefit from that when they can't tolerate the NSAID. So there is evidence for some supplements, but they're not the first thing we reach for. They're not the cure. They're always part of an uh, overall program. You mentioned acupuncture and massage, but uh, we have yet to bring up uh, relaxation techniques, mm. yoga, and tai chi. Yeah. We can kind of lump all three of those together, but yeah. how do those help patients? So there's no question. All those things which I put under the category of mind-body therapies uh, will do relaxation. They will reduce pain. There's been a number of studies showing that. Uh, and the nice thing is anybody can do them. Right? So if you're not into Tai Chi, you can try yoga. If you're not into yoga, you can do meditation. You can't do meditation, guided imagery. There's a lot of different modalities within the mind-body realm. Almost everybody can find something that fits for them. And a lot of these things can be delivered by a CD online. Uh, learn it once, and then you can practice it for the rest of your life. Dr. Brent Bauer, always great to talk to you. And, you know, I'm kind of high on this Sammy stuff. It's good for osteoarthritis <laughs> and depression. Why wouldn't you not just take a little at this age? We've been talking about complementary therapies for treating pain with Dr. Brent Bauer. We're going to take a short break, but when we come back, we're going to learn about Mayo Clinic's new endeavor, the Well Living Lab, studying the connection between healthy living and our indoor environment. Plus, myth or matter of fact, 
Americans spend 90% of their time indoors. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are back talking with the director of the Complementary and Integrative Medicine Program at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Brent Bauer. Dr. Brent Bauer is also medical director of the a new endeavor called the Well Living Lab at Mayo Clinic. How about this myth or matter of fact? Americans spend 90% of their time indoors. Is that a myth? On average, it's a fact. It, it, you know, if you think about it, you go to bed, you're probably indoors. You get up and eat, you're indoors. You probably transport to your work inside in a, a car, bus, a train. Uh, you're at work, most of us work inside. So when you look at that 24 hour day, most of us spend about 90% indoors, which <laughs> is huge if you're gonna think about wellness. And how does that translate into the Well Living Lab? And what is a Well Living Lab? Great questions. So if you think about it, we, we really wanna be healthy, right? We're promoting wellness, we're talking about exercise, nutrition, but what if your indoor environment is working against you? What if we have too many volatile organic compounds in our air here that's actually hurting us? What if these lights are actually turning down our melatonin at the time we're trying to go to sleep? So what we understand now is there's a lot of research that says the indoor environment can really affect our health sometimes negatively, but I think more excitingly, can we use that knowledge to make our indoor environments healthier? So that's what the Well Living Lab is trying to do. We're creating actual spaces. Right now we have an office where we've brought Mayo employees with their computers and plunked them down into an office where we can manipulate the lights, the sound, thermal comfort, uh, air quality. <laughs> and see You've made them into living lab rats. <laughs> they, they are, they, we prefer to think of them as uh, uh, research volunteers. Okay, right. That's what I meant to say. Uh, but they're allowing us to manipulate the environment around them and then we can actually watch through cameras, through sensors which are embedded throughout the entire office, um, bands that they're wearing that collects biometric data from them. Oh. So we can actually look and see what happens when we change the lights. Can we make them more productive? Can we increase their sleep at night? Can you change the air quality in the room? We can. Uh, we, we can make it a little worse by ble bleeding in some air from the street. Like uh, <laughs> What about pop exhaust burned microwave popcorn? What does that do to the folks? We, we haven't done that particular study <laughs> you yet. You totally need to study that. <laughs> but yeah, so but those are the types of things you think about. You know, how do we use the environment to enhance health? So I think the burned popcorn smell is a negative, but are there aromas that we can infuse in the air safely to increase productivity alertness? Are there things we can do with the environment to make us more likely to move? So I think as we start to think of the proactivity hmm. that we can bring to, and now think about our huge enterprise here, if every employee had a more ideal wellness space, if you will, where they're working, what would that do for our healthcare costs? What would that do for productivity? And more importantly, what would it do for us as individuals with quality of life? So it's a huge opportunity. Well, I would also think that all of the patients that are in patient rooms on this campus and at all the Mayo campuses could benefit from this type of research as well. So the lab was built to be very configurable. So right now we have six different modules, each of which can be turned into a hotel room, an apartment, uh, closed office, open office, and every one of those is a completely censored environment where we can look at all these different things. So if you said, let's look at how old people do when they're in their home, we can bring old people into the lab, create an apartment for them, and actually watch everything they do, see what the, the floor sensors can pick up their walking pattern. We can look at how they cook, what they eat. Uh, I think we can learn a lot and then we can translate that into their homes. What sensors do we need at home to be safer? How do we track our environment when we're out of the lab, so to speak? 
The Well Living Lab, it is called, uh, and I know you haven't been doing this for, for too long, but what's the most interesting thing you've learned so far? Well, I think we've confirmed what most people would under or would uh, would expect, and that is that uh, women tend to like it warmer, and men tend to like it colder. Uh, that that seems to be coming out as uh, one of our early findings. Is that right? But yeah. what uh. makes the office more productive, the warmer or the colder? Well, I, and I think that's going to be the key is to find the sweet spot where most of us can be comfortable. But now let's dive into what can we do in the microclimate? What can we do around the individual? Because if you like it warmer, I like it colder. That could be a fabric. Uh, solution where maybe the clothes we wear can help us be hotter or colder. The chair we're sitting on could have heating or cooling elements. So it's really kind of interesting to think where we might go in the next six months, a year, as we learn more about how do we make the individual comfortable once we've made the overall environment as optimal as we can. Huh. So you think, uh, I mean, what's the ultimate goal to, uh, I am sure, uh, improve patients' lives, but in terms of the Mayo Clinic itself, it to improve productivity? Is that the, the, the main goal? or no, I don't think it's the main goal, but it's an important goal, right? If, if, if we find out that turning the HVAC, the heating uh, air conditioning <laughs> system up 10 times makes air quality better so we're healthier, but the cost is in the millions of dollars, that's a hard sell. But if we can show that changing X at a cost of Y increases productivity such that we, uh, we more than pay for that change, now we're making people healthier and we're not hurting the bottom line. So I think there is an economic question here. We can't just be pie in the sky. Uh, the other thing I want to do is I really want to help people ask the question, answer the question for what should I do in my home? Should I have a different air purifier? If I can't rebuild my entire furnace system, maybe there's things I can do to mitigate some of the negatives. Uh, what is the best lighting for my child? What's the best uh, air quality for my child with asthma? And what can I do at a relatively inexpensive level to make those things better in their environment? When do you think we might have the answers? You know, I think we're going to unroll answers on an ongoing basis. Right so. here on Mayo <laughs> Clinic Radio? Uh, well, of One course, at a time. My, my favorite place to ever come and talk about new and exciting things. <laughs> I just want to make sure we had that set. So, uh, and there's really no end to the things that you can study. No. In fact, it's very interesting. As we start to talk to a lot of different companies, a lot of aging uh, programs and so forth, people are very interested in taking what we learn in the lab and then bringing it out into the real real world. So in other words, could we wire 500 secretaries uh, spaces here at Mayo Clinic? Could we go across to one of our uh, aging in place programs and wire up their rooms and learn at a much, much higher level based on what we find in the small space here in the lab? And who is funding your research? This is a great collaboration between Mayo Clinic and Delos, D-E-L-O-S. Delos is a company that has been uh, working on this area for a long time. They've created the well building standard. Mm. So they've looked at all the science and tried to come up with the optimal air quality, lighting, sound, uh, to kind of give a, uh, a basis for how do we make the environment better for people in an office space. Pretty exciting stuff. And Dr. Brent Bauer, we've been talking about the connection between our health and our indoor environments. He is the medical director of the Well Living Lab at Mayo Clinic. Dr. Brent Bauer, again, thanks for being here. Always great to be on. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll discuss the childhood obesity epidemic with a Mayo Clinic expert. And later on, we'll learn more about the potential benefits of using proton beam radiation therapy for certain types of cancer. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Dementia with Lewy bodies is a disease that can be tricky to diagnose. That
That's because symptoms are often similar to Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases. Mayo Clinic experts say an accurate diagnosis is important as some treatments for other types of dementia may worsen symptoms of Lewy body disease. A new Mayo Clinic study published in the online issue of Neurology describes how parts of the brain can act as clues to help determine if people with memory problems are more likely to develop Lewy body disease versus Alzheimer's disease. So what is Lewy body dementia? A dementia with Lewy bodies, or DLB as it's often abbreviated, uh, is the second most common cause of uh, dementia, especially among the el elderly. Uh, Alzheimer's disease is obviously most common. Mayo Clinic neurologist Dr. Brad Bavay says Lewy body dementia is often misdiagnosed as Alzheimer's disease, but it is very different. It's also unique in its clinical features. Uh, there are some features that are suggestive of Alzheimer's disease. Other suggestive of Parkinson's disease, but DLB really is complex. Now again, Dr. Beauvais says the right diagnosis is key because medications that don't work well for Alzheimer's do help some people with Lewy body disease. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. According to the National Institutes of Health, in the past 30 years, the prevalence of childhood obesity has more than doubled among ch children ages 2 to 5, has nearly tripled among youth ages 6 to 11, and also more than tripled among adolescents ages 12 to 19. Lifestyle choices, food portions, and the lack of physical activity have led to increased weight gain in the past few decades. Today, one out of six American children are obese. One out of six. Obesity in childhood can lead to lifelong health problems, including heart disease, type 2 diabetes, high cholesterol, and high blood pressure. In addition, being overweight can lead to social and emotional problems for children as well. So what can be done about the childhood obesity epidemic? Here to discuss the topic is Mayo Clinic psychologist, Dr. Bridget Biggs. Welcome to the program, Dr. Biggs. It's nice to meet you. Hi, thank you. Good to meet you too. One in six children, is there a reason why or is it is it a multitude of reasons? It's definitely a multitude of reasons, but I think the primary reason why we're seeing such an increase over the last several decades has really been about uh, lifestyle in our society and other societies that are seeing similar increases in the rates of obesity. And how do you know if your child is overweight? Is it Do they look overweight or is there a chart somewhere that we should be <laughs> worrying about us mothers and fathers? <laughs> well, uh, kind of... The quick and dirty way of looking at a child's health is a body mass index. What that is is a ratio of weight to height. And for children, we take into consideration uh, the child's gender and age as well. Um, and the body, ma or body mass index percentile um, relative to other kids, uh, their, their age and gender. Uh, once children reach uh, 85th percentile or above, uh, that is an indicator of potential overweight. Um, and then 95th percentile and above um, is considered obesity. A BMI is not a perfect indicator. Um, there are also children who are very muscular and athletic and have an elevated BMI, but it is um, a very quick and inexpensive way of taking a quick look at the possible risk for other health um, problems when, that a child could have. When they're little, uh, when they're babies, when they're toddlers, um, you go in for those wild child checkups and they say your child is this percentile for height and this percentile for mm -hmm. weight. Are those even those infant type of indicators, are those good indicators if the child is going to have an issue? They're the first mm -hmm. um, place to look. Um, really, I think it's 
more important to take a look even more broadly at what are the eating habits that a child is developing over time and what are their physical activity habits that are developing over time. You can certainly have a child who is technically in the healthy BMI range or has a healthy weight to length ratio, um, but if they're sitting all day and not having proper nutrition, that isn't very healthy either. So I, I was surprised with these statistics. I always thought that obesity was something you'd worry about when your child was sort of 11 years of age or, or older. You're, you're talking as children less than two. Um, and so, you know, just explain this to me because in our house we have a young family and feeding time's like a zoo. And sometimes <laughs> the, the children want to eat and sometimes they don't. Right. Should we be, how do we distinguish between fussiness of a child not wanting to eat and they're full up versus them needing to eat. How, how, how should we do that? Yeah, I heard a really great uh, saying at a conference, um, parents provide, children decide. So if we are providing our children with healthy options and a regular schedule of eating, they're going to determine what their body needs. So it's very, very typical for some young children to barely pick at their plate, one, and then ask for second helpings on another um, occasion of eating, but what's most important is providing healthy options, um, plenty of variety, um, plenty of fruits and vegetables, um, and uh, and having some regular meal times and eating at the table as a family. So it's that's a great way to look at it. The parents provide, and the how does that parents provide, child decides. Okay, because uh, if you think, well, the only thing my kids will eat is macaroni and cheese and chicken nuggets, then that's what you're going to want to make all the time. But no, it's the other way. <laughs> it might be easier in the short run. Right. I can see why parents would go that way. Well, because you feel like they should be eating something for mm -hmm. every meal, but it's that's not maybe that's what's gotten us to this point of. Uh, an, of an epidemic. Right. right. I'm, I'm surprised, Tracy, you know what's on the food menu in our household every day. Uh, <laughs> it used to be when mine were that size, it used to be. So as, as adults, we talk about three meals a day and try and cut back on the snacks. Mm -hmm. What about children who are young as two and, and growing? Should they be having regular snacks along the way as well? Or Most children will, will eat three meals and probably two snacks during the day, depending on the gaps in between, uh, one or two snacks, um, depending on the gaps between the the timing of meals. How do you help children then? Are, are you helping their parents more or are you helping the child more when it comes to trying to manage the obesity? Um, I work with families. So really, we focus on health behavior. How are you treating your body? What kind of nutrients are you bringing into your body? Um, and how can the family as a whole develop these healthy eating patterns, such as regular meal times, turning the electronics off during meal and snack times, eating at a, a table as a family, um, listening to their stomachs to see when they are full um, and kind of retraining that because we train ourselves to eat more than what our bodies really need um, a lot of times. Um, doing physical activity as a family. Um, we work on goal setting. What's a reasonable goal? So um, as one teenager wonderfully pointed out, you know, you can tell me to eat by my plate, but that's not realistic for me right now. So, okay, let's start with where you're at. What are some realistic goals for you? So there are mums and dads out there who, and yours truly, who put the TV on just to calm the children down and right. then they will eat their food. Is, is that a bad practice pattern that, I, that I'm doing? I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> he's Why? got a lot of kids. When he says it's a zoo, there's a lot of kids over at that house. <laughs> Why so, is it a bad idea? Well, with TV, um, it gets us distracted. We aren't even noticing our food. I'm sure all of us have had that experience where we're really into maybe a TV show or a 
sports game that we really like and next or thing at we the know movies. or the movies and we look down that whole popcorn <laughs> exactly we look down and everything's gone um and so we're just not paying as much attention to what we're eating and to our satiety signals um also just having screens on any kind of screen often um, opens us up to other advertisements oftentimes for food um, so we're getting signals that we should be hungrier perhaps even when we're not and also getting signals that maybe we can be happy if only we would eat this snack food for example do you have the situation where the child is dealing with obesity and then you turn around and look at the parents and say okay this is going to be a family deal is there pushback from those parents i mean obviously they know that they also have an obesity issue but how does that work out if people are maybe a little hesitant (laughs) to the message you have (laughs) for them um I think you know families are at a different at different places right. of, of kind of where how, where where they're coming from, what their experience has been. Um, and I always try to listen to where the family has been, what have their experiences been, um, and what are they interested in doing. What's motivating them for coming to the appointment? We'll work from there. So you've worked with families and you've made diet and exercises choices, but still the child has some obesity. Are there other medications, for example, that children should start, or what's your thoughts about that? Well, we, um, I work in a multidisciplinary clinic um, with Dr. Seema Kumar and um, uh, several dietitians. Um, and it's in that clinic that we see some of the more severe um, cases. So once, you know, kids have been, uh, kids and their families have been working on healthy lifestyles, um, they're making some progress but may need some additional help. There are, unfortunately, very, very few medication options that are available to kids. Um, there is a bariatric surgery option, and we do have a program um, for that here at Mayo Clinic for adolescents. Um, but those are always tools that help support the lifestyle change. They really don't work unless working on healthy eating and physical activity is part of that. We've been talking about childhood obesity with Mayo Clinic psychologist Dr. Bridget Biggs. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Biggs. Thank you for having me. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll have an update how Mayo Clinic is successfully using proton beam radiation therapy in selected cancer patients. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Radiation therapy, it's an important part of treatment for a lot of cancers. In fact, more than half of all cancer patients receive one or more courses of radiation as part of their treatment. Mayo Clinic began offering a new type of radiation therapy, proton beam therapy, in 2015 on its Rochester, Minnesota campus and just this year on Mayo Clinic's Arizona campus. Now, unlike standard radiation therapy using x-rays or photons, which travel all the way through a person's body, proton beam therapy uses highly charged particles called protons to go into the tumor, release their energy, and stop. And that allows higher doses of radiation to be more safely delivered to tumors with less risk to surrounding tissues. While proton therapy isn't necessary for all types of cancer, it is beneficial in the treatment of many kinds of tumors, including brain, breast, and prostate, along with many pediatric cancers. 
Well, here to discuss proton beam therapy is Mayo Clinic radiation oncologist, Dr. Nadia Locke. Dr. Locke, welcome to the program. Nice to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. The proton beam facility at the Mayo Clinic is absolutely gorgeous. Why did you open a proton beam facility at Mayo Clinic, and how does it compare? What's the difference uh, between proton beam and regular radiation? Our department, about 12 years ago, had a retreat, and at that point, we looked at the future of cancer treatment and felt like if we wanted to be able to provide the best, safest radiation care for our patients, that we needed to pursue proton beam therapy. Uh, it took many years to go through the data, the evidence of who would benefit from proton, which patients would benefit the most, to, to figure out what the best size facility, what's the right size for our patient population, people we see. And then during that time, there were developments, rapid developments and improvements in the proton machines that were being developed. Uh, that led us to, to I would say, the, the perfect timing that we have of being able to open a spot-scanning proton facility, which is the, the newest type, uh, and the right size for the, the population that we hope to serve. Uh, so it took many years of, of um, research to figure out what was the, the right type of facility for us. Uh, we looked very closely at the types of cancer patients we treat and the types of cancer patients we felt would benefit the most and felt that the proton would allow us to treat children with all types of tumors, young, younger patients uh, with breast cancers, brain tumors, uh, even and, and certainly older patients that can benefit from the short-term reduction in toxicity, head and neck cancer, some lung tumors, uh, things like that. But, it, but that took quite a while to make sure that we had the right business model, that we were feeling like we were doing this uh, to, to the best interest, for the best interest of our patients. There are several proton beam centers around the country. Um, as you mentioned, th this one, however, is state-of-the-art. I mean, the, the, the facilities and the technology has gotten better and better over the years, right? Absolutely. Our physicists actually work very closely with uh, Hitachi, the vendor that we ended up choosing to do our proton facility, and there are many custom-made uh, features that our physicists help working with the Hitachi engineers designed. Uh, you may have heard that we use pencil beam or spot scanning type of proton beam that is being uh, retrofitted or commissioned in some of the other proton centers that are in the country, uh, but the spot that they're using is about um, half an inch to sometimes even bigger than that. So a fairly big ball of radiation, still not that fine-tuned to be able to carve around important structures like spinal cord or nerves or things like that. Um, with our work with Hitachi, we were able to get that spot down to about four millimeters, size of a pencil eraser. Uh, so so tell us what that means in, in terms of, of what you can treat and what it means for the patient. From what we can treat is we can treat tumors that are uh, complex shapes wrapped around critical structures like ra a, a spine tumor wrapped around the spinal cord or brain tumors wrapped around brain stem uh, and, and get a sharper edge of radiation around those complex shapes as opposed to the, the traditional proton where e even if they are using spot scanning, they have a, a golf ball that they're trying to, to use for laying down these spots and that doesn't allow you to curve around critical structures as well or what most places are still using are not spot scanning where it's basically a, a proton beam that's been uh, feathered out and spread out uh, and then all you can do is shape the far edge so you can make it stop where you want it to stop but on the way in you're going to have a continuous dose of radiation and it doesn't curve around the front edge of the tumor. With pencil beam protons you get the best of both worlds. You get to have that sharp edge and no exit dose 
which the conventional radiation can give you a sharp edge, but it, you still have all the exit dose, the lower dose around it. Wow. With this, this, so you can stop the proton beam where you want to stop it. Exactly. I would imagine that anyone who is diagnosed with cancer and has to have radiation as part of that treatment says, I would like to do that. <laughs> I would like to have the proton, proton beam. But that's not possible, is it? It's not. There are 17 facilities in the country right now. The plan is likely to, in our nation, to go up to maybe 35 over the next 10 years. Even with that, that's going to be only a small 2 to 3 percent of the patients getting radiation, you know, even when we double the proton capacity. So, you know, most of the time when we talk to people and we're trying to convince insurers or our, our institution that this is important, we can say, well, if we reduce this exit dose, for example, on an average patient, we're, we're cutting down the exit dose, um, which is equivalent to about you know, 50,000 mammograms or 5,000 chest CTs. This is, a, this is a fairly significant amount of radiation. But we don't have room to treat everybody with this type of technology, so we have tried to use it where we feel like that reduction is the most important. We're cutting down those low doses, and low is relative. You know, you talk to people about 5,000 extra chest CTs, they don't feel like that's low, but with compared to the side effects that that will cause over your lifetime, we've had to make choices based on who should who will benefit the most when you only have a certain number of spots in this whole country that we can use for proton. So who's the ideal candidate? There's two kinds. So first of all, there's patients that will benefit because they have long-term side effects that we can prevent with protons. And those are, the, the younger you are, the longer you have to live to have those long-term complications of radiation. So if you're younger, you have longer to live before you'd have brain atrophy, for example, from brain radiation. The younger you are, the atrophy, more- Atrophy, brain, brain shrinkage. Brain shrinkage from radiation, which could affect your memory or your thinking, your clear, clarity of thinking. And the younger you are, the more time you have to develop those problems. Uh, and the younger you are, the more sensitive you are to those problems. So brain tumors in kids. Brain tumors in kids and, and even some of our young adults that have average lifespans of 15 to 20 years with low-grade brain tumors, have, that's plenty of time to have long-term side effects from radiation. Uh, for a, another large group of our patients are women with left-sided breast cancers. They have, uh, we've increasingly appreciated that radiation to the left side of our chest with the heart underneath can cause earlier heart problems, heart attacks, heart failure, and by doing protons we can eliminate that exit dose into the heart and reduce their risk for heart complications later on in life. Mm -hmm. uh, the younger you are, the more time you have to develop that kind of problem as well. All right, so those are two uh, clear-cut indications, uh, brain tumors in younger individuals and women with breast cancer on the left side. Yes, other indications are for tumors where it's really hard with conventional radiation to get a high enough dose in safely. Some of the sarcomas uh, and that develop in unresectable areas like the base of the brain uh, or sometimes in, in uh, around the spine where it's hard to get cancer-type margins, wide margins. Uh, sarcomas are resistant to radiation. You need very high doses, but the spinal cord is right nearby, and we can get higher doses in safely to some radio-resistant tumors that are near critical structures. And then short-term complications. Patients with head and neck cancers have been shown to have fewer, need, less need for feeding tube, le less problem with nutrition because they have less problem with swallowing and sores, for example, in their mouth. So there's short-term and long-term reasons why protons may be beneficial. And wow. finally, is it covered by insurance? It, it is covered by insurance, but not all insurances. Um, we've been fairly selective in Rochester, and we have tried to basically only use protons for patients that we feel really would benefit. And so our insurance approval rate's about 90%. You know, so not all, even with multiple appeals, sometimes we don't succeed. Um, but we are, I think, being appropriately selective and making sure that we're picking patients that really the case is pretty compelling. So eventually you can 
get through. <laughs> yeah, exciting technology, and I'm so glad we now have it here at the Mayo Clinic. And we have a facility in Arizona that just opened up also, right? Yes, absolutely. It's yeah. a mirror image, and they are very, treating very similar cases to what we're treating as well. All right, Dr. Nadia Locke, radiation oncologist, Mayo Clinic in Rochester. Thanks so much. Thank you. That's our program for this week. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. Tweet us your health and medicine questions anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or email us at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We may answer your question during an upcoming program. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.